0: Good morning. Good morning. Everyone awake and ready to go? Let's remember the verse we chose yesterday. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our objective for the praise and the glory of God. Now, I want to do a couple of things to begin with. I have a book uh, I hope you'll be able to get look how small about Philippians uh, the, the people who publish this book are way up in Canada it's a little difficult to obtain but it would be great if you can get it I think they have a um, site online anyway I'm going to leave this one around I'll do, I think I'll leave it in Dean's hands it seems to be the right person to leave it with Does this have this they have it? Uh if they don't have it they can get it or we'll find the website and you can, you can order it from them yeah, but that's a, that's a size that shouldn't intimidate anybody. And then read it through, and that'll be your review of the book. Yeah, okay. One other thing. As some people ask me sometimes about having a devotional time. How do you have your daily devotion? So since I have 15 minutes extra this morning, I'm going to take about three. You got a piece of paper, you got a place to write, not on where today's notes go. That's right, SPECPEA, S-P-E-C-P-E-A. All you guys like acronyms to remember things. Okay, now we're going to go back and fill out horizontally. SIN. So the S is S-I-N, SIN. The P is PROMISE. The E is EXAMPLE. Am I going too fast? Not with this southern draw, all right? (laughs) The C is command. The next P is prayer. The next E is error. Error or stumbling block, you could put beside it. And the A... Its attribute of God, so I choose a passage i don't I don't play Bible roulette when I have my quiet time. You know what that is when I have a devotional time. Get up in the morning and you say, oh, I don't really know where to read today, so you open your Bible and you go Bible roulette. you know the story about the man yeah you know the story about the man who did that. I don't do that i start I read a book, I read the psalms. I I read a book in the New Testament, one of the Gospels, one of the Epistles, some book out of the Old Testament. I start at the beginning of the book, and I work my way through it. If the chapters are too long, or if they're very long, I might take half a chapter. If it's just a lot of narrative of a story and not really given a lot of exhortations or commands or instructions, uh, then I might take a longer passage. But when it's full of things like Philippians, I take a shorter passage. You have to decide that. And then I read it through and I start asking myself these questions. Is there any sin in this passage mentioned? Is there any sin for me to forsake? So I go back to sin. I read the passage through thinking about the S. Is there a sin in this passage for me to forsake? That means is the passage describes something that somebody did or named something. I don't look at the passage philosophically and say it says, I thank my God upon every remembrance. I read there and say, Well, now, a sin would be if he didn't, you don't have to, it's not there. There's no sin in that verse. So don't try to find one where there isn't one. If there's not one, just pass on to the next question. Next question is, is there any promise for me to claim? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's a promise. Is there a promise in this passage? Does God promise something in this passage? Next question. Is there an example to follow? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, you have that a lot in in the Old Testament and and in the New Testament, too. Stories uh, where they explain in the history of something, something that happened. And as you're reading it through, you say, boy, that's a good example. Daniel prayed three times a day to his guys. And there's a good example right there. Okay, so is there an example for me to follow? Fourth, is there a command for me to obey? Fifth, is there a prayer for me to echo? I'm not real big on repeating prayers. And I'm, I'm death on reciting prayers. Cause we don't recite prayers like the rosary and things like that. We pray. Yes. Yeah. Is there a prayer for me to echo? So I'm reading a prayer. Uh, a lot of them in the Psalms and other places in scripture. Paul's prayers here. We were talking about that last night. And this I pray. So I read that through and I say, boy, I should pray like that. So when I pray for Brother Ron, I'm not just going to say, Lord, bless Brother Ron. I'm not just going to pray, bless the church in San Ramon. I'm going to start praying, Lord, and for the brothers in San Ramon, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in all knowledge and discernment. I'm going to start praying like that. I'm going to echo that prayer. That teaches me how to pray. Okay. So I'm getting something out of it for me. I'm not just reading a passage and uh, running off with nothing in my hands. Prayer to echo. The next E, is there an error or some stumbling block, or you could say a bad example for me to avoid? Anything along those lines. I put error because I'm trying to find a short way to put it, you know. Is there an error for me to avoid? Or a bad example? Yeah, and there's plenty of those in the Bible. Because the Bible tells us faithfully what people did. It doesn't paint uh, pictures of heroes and not tell us what they were really like. It lets us see what life was really like. It's a bad example. David went up on the rooftop instead of going out with the troops to the battle. He went up on the rooftop and wandered around in the middle of the day, and he let his eyes go where they shouldn't go, and he saw a woman bathing, and he watched her, and then he called her. There's a bad example. There's a bunch of bad examples in that. (laughs) So I read it and I say, okay, I don't want to learn the hard way. I want to learn right here. I got a bad example and that's a warning to me. Don't do this. Don't do that. Yeah, Error or stumbling block. The last one, is there an attribute of God that helps me to worship him? Or that teaches me something about him, something that uh, stirs me to worship God or helps me to know Him better. Is there some attribute of God in this passage? Yes, sir. Yeah. Do you look for all of these in your? Uh, yeah. Emotional time, or do you yeah. find one and then choose? Well, I'll tell you what happened. You see, uh, when I started doing this. It was kind of mechanical, you know. But then as you do, as I work my way through it, it becomes second nature. I read a passage, and, and my mind is looking for those things. And first of all, when you start it, I would suggest only take about five or ten verses. Don't take a lot. Okay, and say, okay, read them through, looking for a sin. And then probably as you're reading them through, you, you'll already see some. you say, oh, that's not a sin, but that's a promise. I'll get to that on the next time through. There's not that many verses, so you keep working it through. And it'll be obvious to you right away that some of these things, they're not all in every passage. And if something's not there, don't try to force it. Just say, okay, there's no sin in this passage. I don't have to find one. Just let it go. Go to the next one. Go to the next one. Sometimes you might only find one or two in the list in a passage. But that's what God has for you in that passage that day. So you go go through that. You come to the end. You say, okay, now I'm going to pick at least one of these, and I'm going to write a personal application. S-P-E-C-P-E-A, and you draw a little line at the bottom of your sheet, and under that you put my application. Okay, today, and an application is not uh, good if it's not measurable and obtainable. It has to be that. Uh, an application is not um, not really complete if you just say, well, I'm going to love my brothers more. That's a good idea. But that's not really a specific, measurable, how can we tell when you did it? How can you tell if you did it? Or if, you, if that's just wishful thinking. So you say, now, uh, some brother is moving. To, I'm going to go over and help him move because I love him. Or something. You find something to do to show, to express your love. Or maybe it comes to mind. Some brother that you kind of avoid and you don't tell him you love him. So you say, I'm going to put an end to that right now. you got an application. Something that's tangible. And, and that will help you to get a lot out of your daily devotional time. You read a passage. And you're, you take time to meditate on it. To think about it. Looking at these questions. And you make an application. And then you pray. You thank the Lord for what you saw. And what you learned about him. If you had a promise, you claim it. If you saw an attribute of God, you worship him for it. <clears throat> then you're ready to go. Okay. So there's a suggestion. That's that's all it is, you know. There's there's no rule in the Bible about how to have a devotional time. This is something that I found that works and has been a great help to many people. So if it helps you, praise the Lord. Okay. That was the first message. Now we go right to the second message, which is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 30. Philippians 1, 12 to 30. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace of God and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now will Christ be magnified in my body. Whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh. This will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart. And be with Christ which is far better. Nevertheless to remain in the flesh. Is more needful for you. And being confident of this. I know that I shall remain. And continue with you all. For your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. (coughs) Excuse me. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father. For this opportunity that we have to be together this morning, today to look into Your Word, you know that we have set ourselves apart for You this day, with a desire that You would speak to us from Your Word, that You would touch our lives, that You would help us to grow, that You would open our minds and teach us as You taught the disciples. Open our understanding that Your Holy Spirit would illuminate us, because we know. That is, it is he who must give us that understanding, give us that light. It's not any human gift. It has to be from you, Lord. And we trust in you. We come with our confidence put in you, not in the human messenger, but in you and in your word and your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would work your work in our lives today so that we wouldn't have to tell other people That it would be obvious to them that something happened to us. That today we met with God. This is what we want. This is what we ask. Grant our request. We pray. For we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 The gospel doesn't need favorable circumstances to advance. Christianity never has needed and does not need at this time the friendship and the approval of the world in order to go forward. That's not the way historic Christianity functions. And one of the evidences you have of that is the language that Paul uses, the way he speaks to the Philippians here in this the second half of the first chapter or this last part. It's not really half. It's more than half. In his whole form of address, and that's why we titled it the way we did. You see in him a triumphant spirit. Here's a man, and don't forget where he is. He's in prison. But you sure can't tell it by the way he writes this epistle. Boy, I tell you, if people got put in prison today, I know some people who would do this. They start writing their lawyer, and they get a a group to go uh, lobby the congressman and they get out posters and they call CNN and they'd have a, a riot or a, some maybe not a riot but a demonstration. They get a website on there with all the pictures right away and uh, call in the Human Rights Committee. They have any of this in the New Testament. And you don't see in Paul here a man complaining about the food in prison and a man complaining about the way he's being treated. And you see a man full of joy. A man who is ministering to other people. He's not telling the Philippians things to make them think about him. He's ministering to them so that they can grow even from prison. And you see the utter selflessness of Paul. He's always thinking of others. And when we reach that place in our growth and our Christian character where we get outside of the little world of self. And we see our other brothers and sisters. And we see a world full of people who have spiritual needs. Then God delivers us from being self-centered. And he turns us into his servants. And this is exactly what you see in the Apostle Paul here. He has a triumphant spirit. Now, as we look at this passage, uh, the first part of it here, verses 12 to 18, adversity advances the gospel. Paul feels triumphant even though there's adversity, there's conflict, there's opposition, because he sees the gospel goes forward in those conditions. So they put Paul in prison. What does that mean? Well, if we reduce this passage here to the net uh, message of it, uh, these verses 12 to 18, we boil that down. He said, what is he trying to say here? He said, hey, you put me in jail, but you can't put the gospel in jail. They put me in prison, and what happened? He said, the other brethren uh, became bold. They began to preach. They filled up the gap, filled in the ranks. They picked up the gospel, the responsibility for preaching it, and went out and began to preach it. So Paul is not. A man who gives in to his circumstances. He doesn't live under the circumstances. He lives above them, doesn't he? And we talk like that a lot. We say, well, under the circumstances. Uh, But don't live under the circumstances. Get on top of them. Don't let your life simply be a series of reactions to circumstances. (laughs) Live above them. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He says, I want you to understand, brethren, that the things that have happened to me... Have fallen out or resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. The gospel has not stopped. Paul is not visiting cities. Paul is not planting any more churches at this point. But the gospel has not stopped moving. The gospel is still going forward. And he said actually what they did to us trying to stop us. They've actually helped it to go forward. When he talks about the things which have happened to me. What is he talking about? We'll go back to everything that's happening from Acts 21 forward. How he was arrested in the temple in Jerusalem and the mob took him. They were beating him and about to tear him limb from limb. And the Roman soldiers came in and they took him and they arrested him. And as they took him away into the castle and up the steps of the castle, what happened there by the temple? He turned around and looked at the crowd in the temple that he was being delivered from, that mob that was about to kill him. And he took a breath of fresh air and he asked if he could preach. He was an open air preacher. He was a compulsive preacher. And he talked the soldiers into letting him stop right there. Look at that. He had the the steps of the Roman castle, the Roman fort there, for his pulpit. And he had the mob in the temple for his congregation. And he went at it. For the furtherance of the gospel. The Jews made a certain men among the Jews took an oath, made a vow, that they wouldn't eat or drink anything until they killed Paul. Well, you know how they died, don't you? Unless they broke their vow. If they kept their vow, they died all shriveled up. Hungry and dehydrated. Paul's taken to Caesarea. He spent two years in prison there. Because he wouldn't pay a bribe to get out. No, he wouldn't pay it. Not even considering it a contribution to the care, the cost of his... Up pay, uh, up his Uh, What am I trying to say? His uh, keep there. Upkeep, thank you. He wouldn't pay it. Stayed in for two years. Finally, they put him on a boat. He was shipwrecked. A viper bit him as he got onto the island. Yeah, the people said he was an, uh, uh, a criminal, a godless man, and that uh, fortune or the gods were punishing him. He escaped the shipwreck alive, and now the viper bit him. He was doomed to die. And then they changed their minds, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, then they said he was a god. So you just don't listen to what people say, because what people say is like the wind. First it blows this way, and then it blows that way. So you got to be guided by something else. See? All these things that happened to him. And now he's in prison in Rome. This is at the end of that long journey. And he's waiting for his trial. Where he is going to defend what he's been doing. Preaching the gospel. He's waiting for that. He says, the things which have happened to me. And people heard the story about all the things that happened to Paul. And you say, boy, he's really in a tough spot. He said, no, 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 no. Don't feel sorry for me. The gospel's going forward. The gospel's going forward, brothers. That's the idea here. Pray. Learn to pray this way. Pray that whatever happens to you in life, God will help you to recover within the hour. In Philippi, he was beaten by the mob and thrown into prison. By midnight, he's praying and singing hymns. He's in prison here in Rome. And he's writing letters and encouraging the Christians and the gospel is going forward. Don't let yourself become uh, submerged and lost and defeated under a pile of circumstances. Get yourself into a cycle of depression and discouragement and everything's against me and nothing works out and anger gets in there too. Whatever happens to me, help me, Lord, to recover within the hour. If it takes you an hour and a half or two sometimes, we'll understand because it takes the rest of us that too sometimes. But you see what I'm saying is, don't succumb and don't surrender to your circumstances. God is in control. And Paul knew that. So he believes that there's progress in the midst of adversity and that they didn't need the approval of, of the government of society of that day in order for the gospel to go forward. He says in verse 13, it has become evident what has become evident? That, that his chains are in Christ. He said everybody knows it. All the palace guard, the praetorium, which is either the palace itself or that group of uh, 10,000 hand picked men that guarded the palace there in Rome. Everybody knew. Anybody who was anywhere around Paul knew why he was there. Why is this one in chains? This is a murderer. Why is this one in chains? Uh, whatever it was. He led a rebellion against the Roman governor in a certain province. Why is this one in chains? Why is this one in chains? For preaching Christ. My chains are in Christ. And everybody knew. that This was no ordinary prisoner. Everybody in Rome knew because Paul refused to be quiet. Now some people, you know, this happened to them. They go into a depression and they never say anything again. They just sit there with their head down. You know, and some people today, there are churches around today that say if you trust God and if you have faith, nothing bad will ever happen to you. You'll never get sick and you'll have all the money you all need. And some of them think you'll have all the money you want. That's a lot of money. (laughs) And your circumstances will never be contrary. You'll just go through life from triumph to triumph. See, And they say this is a lack of faith. But it's not. God is in control. He is in control. He says to all the palace guard and to all the rest is evident. Everyone who had any contact with Paul knew why he was there. He didn't say... Oh, because in Philippi they beat me and I was a Roman citizen and they beat me and threw me into jail. He didn't talk about how he'd been mistreated. Paul didn't talk about Paul. Who do you talk about? Paul talked about Christ. Everybody around. All the palace guard. I laugh sometimes when I think about those men that had to be chained to him. Or or in that same room or guarding the door to his house. I wonder if some of them didn't argue, you know, and say, I I, I don't want to, how about if you go today, I'll take your turn next week. I I just can't, I'm not up for that today. I'm not up for eight hours of Jesus Christ and the gospel and proving to me the resurrection and asking me if I believe. You come to the end of the book and you have it there, don't you? All the saints, chapter 4, verse 22. All the saints salute you. Chiefly, those who are of. Caesar's household Paul's at work he's at work so he says it's evident to everyone when uh, I was growing up in the south we had this little gospel chorus we used to sing this little light of mine I'm going to let it shine let it shine till Jesus comes I'm going to let it shine Don't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. And some people, they sing it with a little different tune today. They really get down on that. (laughs) That's a good message, isn't it? And that's exactly what Paul is doing. Think about the light of the gospel that's in you. Does anyone around you see your light shining? You're not in jail. Your circumstances are not as bad as Paul's. Yeah, I'm including myself. Remember, we set that as a ground rule yesterday. We're not in his situation. Is our light shining? Because that's, what, that's part of what the Christian life is all about. It's become evident to all the palace guard and to all the others, to everybody else, to all the rest. This man could not be quiet. He preached on the streets in Philippi. He preached by the river in Philippi. <laughs> And when they put him in prison, he preached to the jailer, and the jailer got saved. And when they took him to Rome and they put him in prison in Rome, the palace guard starts getting saved, and those of Caesar's household start getting saved. He didn't know how to be quiet about Christ. And we say, oh, Lord, give me uh, the right opportunity to speak about Christ. And we go on and on, and we say, I, I haven't said anything to him yet. I'm building a bridge. you building a bridge. You could take four Abrams tanks across them abreast. The same time you're building a bridge. What are you talking about? You're just one person. All you got to do is talk to them about the Lord. I just can't find the words. It's not the right time. You ever heard that? Yes. Now, it's true that there are moments when people are more open and sensitive. And there might be situations in a group where you're not going to get anywhere, even to first base with people trying to talk to them because they're, They're going to defend themselves in front of their friends and everything. We all understand that. We all need to understand something else, too. Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. Be instant. In season and out of season. You got that? Those are the only two times you have to preach the word. (laughs) When it's convenient, when it's the right moment, and when it isn't. In season and out of season. It's right there. That's not an invention of mine. Paul's chained in verse 14. Look at him. Many of the brethren waxing confident or growing confident or taking courage by my bonds or my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Many of the brethren or most of the brethren. This is the positive effect it's having. Progress in adversity. And Paul is triumphant about it. They got me in jail. He says, but look at my replacements. They're preaching the gospel. They filled in the gaps. They came off the bench and got into the game. Yes. You know, that's the way most sports are anyway. Twenty two thousand people who need exercise, watching ten people out on the court who need rest. You know. That's the way it is. So the Lord says, get off the bench and get active. You know? We talked about that yesterday. There's no spiritual gift of being a spectator. God has something for everyone in the body, everyone in the local church to do, to encourage and help in the life of that local church. He has something for everyone. So they got going. And here the case is, he's not thinking uh, just about himself in that small context of Rome. He's thinking about brothers in other places who are preaching the gospel. I can't go preach the gospel now in Macedonia, for example. He said, but the news is getting to me that there's other people who are preaching. They're preaching. They're they're not afraid. Trouble is, there were two kinds of preaching, verses 15 to 17. Some preach Christ of envy and strife. And some also of goodwill. So you have wrong motives and right motives. And they're not preaching false doctrine. Well, there are plenty of people also who preach things that are wrong out of envy and strife. And full of self-importance and boasting and for and uh, greedy to have gain, to make money. One preacher said, and I'm not going to say from where, he said some people... Uh, lead the sheep, and some people feed the sheep, and now I'm going to shear the sheep. He said that. And they tell people that it rains gold in their congregation, but it only rains gold into preachers' pockets. Some preach Christ of envy and strife. A lot of wrong motives and a lot of wrong teaching out there. But these people were preaching Christ. According to Paul. What they were saying. About Jesus Christ. Was true. They were apparently preaching the gospel. But their motives were wrong. It wasn't the message that was wrong. It was the motive. And sometimes you can do the right thing. For the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. And that's what was happening. He says in verse 16. The one preached Christ. Some preach Christ of contention. Not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Affliction to my chains. This is the, the lowest motivation of all. This is the motivation of the hireling who ignobly promotes his own interests, his own selfish interests, for personal gain and to afflict others. He's not preaching Christ because he loves Christ. He's in competition. Uh huh. Paul's in prison. And that's because he didn't have enough faith. Or whatever. They said we don't know what they said. You know, he's being punished. And I'm the replacement. Don't pay any attention to him. We don't know what they said. But they preached Christ. As a matter. Uh, a matter of. Aggravating. Or frustrating. Paul. And Paul says Well. I wish they didn't do it that way. In verse 17. The other of love. Now there's the good motivation. Knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. So Paul's in prison. He's going to have to defend the gospel there. Well that doesn't mean we're going to wait for him to finish defending the gospel before it's preached again. The gospel is not on hold. He can't preach it right now. He's in jail. He's going to have to defend the gospel before the Roman Empire. We're going to preach. We're going to encourage him. Look, Paul, the gospel is still going out. When these other people were saying, uh-huh, it's because you were a bad boy and you were in prison and, and God is through with you. Don't pay any attention to what Paul says and to what Paul writes. They were using it that way. People do those kind of things. At least Paul says they're preaching Christ. But let's ask ourselves for a moment here about our motivations you see Paul saw it? He saw it and he addresses it here. It's possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason. What about your motivation? You love Christ? Love the gospel? Love the word of God? Love your brethren? Try to serve the Lord? In order to push some other brother out of the way and take his place. Or you have an opportunity to serve and you try to show somebody that you hope is looking that you can do it better than him. You feel envious or jealous of people who are serving the Lord. Those are all motivations that pollute and contaminate our service for the Lord. You see, and Paul knew this was happening. He said, well, how can he know that? You're not supposed to judge other people's motives. How can he know that? Well, I guarantee you, if the Holy Spirit inspired Paul, and he did, to write this, it's because it was obvious. Either those people were saying it, or else the Holy Spirit himself revealed it to Paul that that's what they were doing. Or both. But the idea... That he couldn't know what they were doing. Or why they were doing it. It Is just simply ridiculous. They were probably saying it. There were stories circulating probably. But at any rate. This is what we have. Uh, Two reactions. To this situation. Paul can't preach the gospel anymore. So now what do we do? We either give up. And wait for the defense of the gospel to be over. To decide if we can preach it. Or we get up and preach. They got up and preached. And when they preached. Two possible reasons for doing it. One, out of envy and strife. Trying to show Paul that he was wrong and that God was finished with him. That maybe he should have been more politically correct. And he wouldn't have gotten himself into trouble. I don't know. We'll ask him when we get to heaven. And the others preaching to encourage Paul. Look, Paul, we're picking up and going on where you left off. We learned from you. We're with you. We're working together with you in the faith of the gospel. And that's exactly what was happening. And so he says here, so what then? In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ has preached, verse 18, I rejoice. He says, I rejoice and I will rejoice. I'm rejoicing now and I'm going to keep on rejoicing. I'm not going to spend all of my time thinking about and praying for God to do something about those people who are preaching out of wrong motivation. If they're preaching Christ, I'm not going to get hung up on that. They're preaching Christ. Praise the Lord, Christ is being preached. The motivation's wrong. Okay, let God sort that out. That's not my job. Someone said one time, if I... Uh, Walk down the street and there's a banana peeling on the street, on the sidewalk in front of me. I'll pick it up and throw it into the trash can. But I'm not going to dedicate my life to a campaign of removing banana peelings from the sidewalks of the world. So I I deal with what I have to when I come across it. But The rest of it, I just leave. I'm not going to spend my life on things like that. And that's exactly the way Paul is. Praise the Lord. Christ is being preached. They're preaching Christ. If they were preaching something else false doctrine he would have corrected it but the message they were preaching was true and we know people this way today what they're preaching about the gospel is true they might have some other things wrong but they're preaching the gospel their attitude might be wrong but if the gospel that they're preaching is the gospel of the word of God if they are truly preaching Christ as he is here in this book what does not mean we have to approve of everything they're doing we can at least say well when, they, when people hear him preach they're hearing about Christ praise the Lord may the Lord use it for his glory I wouldn't do what he's doing. I don't think it's right. But the message he's preaching. Is the true message of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of other people that are preaching. And you can't apply this to everyone. Because what they're preaching is not Christ. And what they're preaching is not the gospel. What they're preaching is not. The apostolic doctrine from the word of God. So in that case. You have to do like uh, Paul shows us. uh, About the Bereans. He said they were more noble than the others. Because they received the word of God. And searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. They looked into the scriptures and they checked up on what was being said and what was being preached, what was being taught to see if it really was that way. So sometimes you have to do that. Actually, you always should search the scriptures. You should never take any man's word. Look in the book and see what it says. A person who's preaching the true word of God will invite you to do that. He's happy for you to do that. A person who's got his own agenda and doctrine is worried. And that's the way Catholicism has been for years. And that's why they don't like people to read the Bible. And that's why they say the church has the magisterium. Because they don't want you to pay any attention to what the Bible says. Because then you start asking questions. How come it doesn't say in here to go to the priest for forgiveness? How come there's no place in all the New Testament where people are praying to images? How come the rosary is not in the New Testament? And people start asking questions, and the priest says, Oh, my son, don't worry about those things. A young man who went to the priest in Spain, and, and he was 19, and he went to the priest, and he said he had a lot of questions, and the priest said, Don't worry about it. He said, You just keep coming to Mass. Let the church worry about all of those things. It's kind of like a travel agency, you know. You just pay them your money and let them make all the arrangements. They don't want people to read. I want people to try to understand it, because then they start finding out that there's something different in the Bible from what they're practicing. But when a person is preaching Christ, we can rejoice in this, not if the attitude is wrong, and these men's attitudes were, were wrong, the ones who were preaching out of envy and strife, but Paul says, I can rejoice in this, that Christ is being preached. I'm not going to think about their attitude. I'm not going to obsess on that. Christ is being preached. Praise the Lord for that. Okay, but I draw a lesson for myself. And what is that lesson? I need to preach with the right attitude. Yeah. So he comes to the next part. Verses 19 to 26. There is joy in the shadow of death. Because he's in prison. And there's a possibility that will end in death. He says, I know this, shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed but that with all boldness as always so now Christ shall be magnified in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I have to die, I'm ready, he said, but he believed. That he was going to be delivered. He says in verse 19. I know that this shall turn to my salvation. He's not talking about forgiveness from sin. That kind of salvation. He's talking about being uh, saved or rescued. Delivered from that situation that he is in. In prison. How is he going to be delivered from prison? He says through your prayer. (laughs) Paul knew how important the prayers of a local congregation of believers were. And he counted on the prayers of the Philippians through your prayer. And you will never know, brothers, until you get to heaven, how important and how powerful the prayers of a congregation are to the Lord. We should pray at home. We can pray anywhere and all the time. But he was counting on the prayers of of that congregation of believers through your prayer, the prayer of of the Philippian church. And he says, of course, the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Because... Prayers move God to answer. But God gives the answer. Prayer is not therapy. And prayer doesn't provide its own answers. Prayer moves God to do things that we can't do. And that's exactly what he's saying here. So he says, according to my earnest expectation, in nothing I will be ashamed, he says. This is his holy determination and dedication in verse 20. Christ will be magnified in my body, whatever happens. Christ will be magnified. Paul was the what? The amazing human magnifying glass. What do you use a magnifying glass for? What do you use a magnifying glass for? To look at the magnifying glass? To see something else. And that's what Paul's life was. His life was simply a means by which... Christ might be made bigger. Christ amplified. Christ magnified. It means to be made bigger. To be made more visible. Christ. I tell you brothers. Sometimes Christ is hiding in our lives. And sometimes Christ is in fine print in our lives. And sometimes he's invisible in our lives. Christ in Paul's life was magnified. Paul considered that he was not a great preacher of this or that. He considered that he was a magnifying glass. The whole purpose of his life was to make Christ bigger. Make Christ more visible. And you know each of us should be able to say that. Christ will be magnified in me. Take that as an application today. Christ, may he be visible through me to other people. May he be made bigger. What did John the Baptist say? He must increase increase. and I must decrease the amazing disappearing prophet. Smaller and smaller and smaller. I'm not going to get off on the John the Baptist because that's maybe for May. We'll see about the uh, the month of May if we do that or not. But at any rate, this is what you have here. Paul is, is preaching to magnify Christ. Paul is living to magnify Christ. He wants people to see Christ him, And he says, he will be magnified in my body. Not just in my speaking, in my body. In 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20, the word of God tells us how important our body is. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are of God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price, he says. We belong to the Lord. And he says, body and spirit. And he puts it in that order. God is interested in the body and what we do with our body. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. And what our behavior is in the body is very important to the Lord. Your body is sanctified or it should be set apart for the Lord. Whether by life or by death. If I live, I'm going to preach Christ. If I die, it will be a testimony to the Lord. But it's not going to be about Paul whether I live or die. It's going to be about Christ. That's what he's saying. For to me to live... That's exactly right. For me to live? Paul's name is not even in there. It's not about Paul. It's about Christ living in me. There used to be a chorus we sang like that. Christ liveth in me. Oh, what a salvation this. That Christ liveth in me. And it made us think about that. The Lord living in me. And can other people see him? For me to live is Christ. That means for me to live... Is Christ's will. My life is to do Christ's will. I should know what he wants me to do. I should think about what pleases him. I should try to represent him. For me to live is Christ. How can I live a whole day and not consider if this is pleasing to the Lord? How can I not bring him into all my decisions? Into all my activities? If for me to live is Christ, I'm representing him. We are ambassadors of Christ. And just like people in Spain look at the ambassador from the United States and they judge Americans and they size up Americans by how they see the American ambassador live and behave over there. Well, that's the way people, most people are that way. They won't even read their Bible, but they'll read you. They look at you. They know you. And that's where they're going to come into contact with Christ. For me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. To die is not defeat, it's victory. You move on. To be with Christ, which is far better, he says. But in verse 22, he says, if I live in the flesh, there's fruit of my labor. So if he lives, in verse 22, and this is where in verses 22 to 24, he's speaking about this difficult decision. What should I do? Live, die, stay here. But if I live, he says, it'll be to labor and to bear fruit. Not just to live to escape death. We're not on this planet, we're not in this life running from death. The idea is not to see how many vitamins you can take and how many operations you can have to see how long you can live. Because you're all going to die anyway. We're all going to die. If the Lord doesn't come first, the Spanish say everybody has to die of something. Nobody dies of good health. Everybody dies of something. To die is gain for a Christian. But if we live, it's not life is not just escaping death. And life is not about pleasing yourself. Life is about laboring and bearing fruit for Christ. Being fruitful, he says. If I live, it'll be for fruit. If I die, it'll be, in verse 23, to depart and go be with Christ. He says, I'm caught. I'm in a strait. I'm stuck between two. He says, I desire to go be with Christ. He's not saying, oh Lord, don't let me die, don't take my life, I don't want to die. He's not afraid to die. He knows that death is his servant. Death becomes the servant of the Christian. Death is what ushers us into the presence of the Lord. I have a desire to depart. Death is not the end. Death is a departure. A departure from this life. A departure from this physical world, from this body that is the, the tent or the house that the real you lives in. And it departs and it goes to be with the Lord. You depart and go to be with the Lord. And that body, your tent, stays behind. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. We can't measure how much far better it is. But he says, nevertheless, even though I desire to do that, here's the difficult part. He says I think about the Philippians I think about the believers he says it's more needful to abide in the flesh is more needful for you he's thinking about them for him personally better to go to heaven but he said I if I could stay I could help the Philippians if I could stay I could help them I could serve them and he says in verse 25 having this confidence I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance for your progress And the joy of your faith. His life was a benefit. To other people. It was a blessing. Now if you stay. Think about this. If the Lord grants you life. And allows you to live. How will it be. For the benefit of the believers. In this church. How can you live. For the benefit of the believers. In this church. Because church life. The body, life, Christianity in a congregation lived that way is not what I get out of it. It's what I give to it. We don't look for a church, but we shouldn't. This is what you hear all the time in America. I'm looking for a church that meets my needs. You need to look for a church that meets together in the way God says for them to meet together and where you can participate with them and where you can contribute. It's not what you get out of it. You will get something out of it. Believe me. But it's what you put into it. And Paul is ready to serve. He says, I'll stay. I'm confident that I shall abide and continue with you. And it will be for your progress and the joy of your faith. In verse 26. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me. By my coming to you again. Now look quickly at verses 27 to 30. And we have his exhortations at the end of this chapter. His exhortations to them. And you notice we haven't had many of those. There hasn't been a lot of commands or exhortations to them. But now he says. Let your conversation be. Or let your manner of life be. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Be careful how you behave. Your conduct. The conduct of Christians is a major concern of the servants of the Lord from Paul's time onward. Not just the number of people that raised their hand and said they were Christians. They were not concerned about that. They were concerned about the conduct, the quality of life, and the behavior of the people that said they believed in Christ. Because that's what uh, Christianity is to the world all around us. It's us. It's about you. And it's about me. It's about how we're living. He says your conduct as a Christian. He's talking to all the Philippian believers. This is not a Bible school where he's saying to people who are going to be preachers or ministers. Now because you're going to be ministers you have to behave this way. He's saying to all the garden variety, normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill people who are believers in the church. Everybody. Be careful about your conduct. You don't have the liberty. You don't have the liberty. To just do whatever you want to... When you're carrying the name of Christ. Because your conduct... Affects the gospel. It affects the testimony of Christ in the world. You're calling yourself a Christian. One who belongs to Christ. And people are looking at you... And they're looking at Christianity... And they're forming opinions... Based on what they see. And your conduct should favor... The gospel of Christ. And when a man says he belongs to the Lord... And he is a shark and a tiger in business and runs all over people and doesn't keep his word and doesn't keep his commitment and tricks people and uses double talk. You think those people that get treated that way by that person want to have the same kind of faith that he has? Noblesse oblige. Nobility obligates. There was an Englishman who was an instructor taken as an instructor back many long years ago in the French court to train the princes, to teach them and train them. And they didn't want to learn. They misbehaved. They were young and full of mischief. And he couldn't get them to behave. And so finally he wrote this word and he made them memorize it. Noblesse oblige. Nobility obligates. You can't behave however you want to because you're sons of the king. You're nobility, and you're obligated to live a certain way. And he says to the to the Philippians, you belong to the Lord. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You're preaching a gospel that says that Jesus Christ changes people's lives. Uh-huh. You're preaching a gospel that says that God takes sinners and makes them saints. It says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Does your conduct back up that gospel that you're preaching? He says, whether I come to see you or I'm absent. I don't want you to be this way just if I'm coming. Don't put on the go-to-meeting face or the 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 be-with-the-preacher behavior. (laughs) And that's why it's good to hang around and not just to be one night one place preaching and another night another place preaching. It's good to hang around. It's good to have time to meet and to spend time with the brothers and the sisters to see what life is really like. But he says, even if I can't come, even if I'm not there, if I'm absent, that I, I want to hear of you that you are doing what? Standing fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And there's that picture again of those men uh, in that, yeah, that teamwork in the crew working together, rowing together, striving together, because that word he's using there comes from a word that uh, we get our word athlete from. Sunat leo, or agonizomai is actually the word in this case. But this is the idea. They're striving together, working together, pulling together for the faith of the gospel. They're not just waiting for Paul to come back and preach to them. You're standing fast. You're firm. You're not wavering. You have one mind. There's not a lot of different ideas and variation. Everybody's got one goal and one aim. And you're striving together. You're working and pulling together for the faith of the gospel. He said, this is what I want to see you do. I want to see you live the gospel. I, and if I can't be there to see it, I want to hear about it. Let me hear good news from you, brothers, he says. In verse 28, he says, no fear. And nothing terrified by your adversaries. They had adversaries. They had enemies. But He said, don't be afraid. Don't give in to fear. Proverbs 29:25 says, the fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. A lot of people have made terrible mistakes because they were afraid of people. They were worried about what people were going to think. And about what people were going to say. And about what people were going to do. Instead of just being faithful to the Lord. And true to the Lord. And let the cards fall where they do. And nothing terrified by your adversaries. You see they persecute you. They try to intimidate you. Don't be intimidated. Do you have a problem with fear? Do you have a problem with timidity? Being intimidated in the gospel. Paul said to Timothy. God has not given us a spirit of timidity. But of power and love. And a sound mind. Or discipline. That's what God gives us. Be not ashamed of my chains. He told Timothy. Be not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Don't let yourself be intimidated. Don't worry about it, whether or not they're going to laugh at you or criticize you or try to pick your argument or your presentation apart. Don't worry about that. Don't be intimidated, he says. And nothing terrified by your adversaries. Well, they had a lot bigger problems than that than just arguing with people. People hauled them off to jail. They beat them in those days. They put them in prison. They took their lives. We don't know what that's like in this country. To stand for the gospel that way. We're just worried about people arguing with us. That's all it takes to intimidate us. Uh, yes. Um, the, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Uh, 2 Timothy 1 7. Psalm 34 4. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Psalm 34, 4. So they try to terrify you. That's a proof of their lostness. That they oppose the gospel. That they're enemies of the gospel. What's wrong with the gospel? Why do people hate the gospel? What evil did the gospel ever do to anybody? The gospel isn't teaching people to overthrow governments. To, to put bombs in cars and blow them up. The, the gospel isn't teaching people to rob and to hate and to kill. What's wrong with the gospel? Why do people hate the gospel? <laughs> because it, It's exactly right. Because it tells them what they are. Because the first step is the bad news. It tells you why you need the good news. Mm-hmm. It tells you about your heart. That you're a sinner. And people don't like to know what they're like. D.O. Moody said one time, if you open a photo, uh, shop and you sell pictures of people's faces, portraits... You can make all the money you want to if you do a good job. But if you opened a shop where the only thing you sold were portraits of people's hearts, you go out of business in a week. Nobody wants to see what their heart is like. And they certainly don't want anybody else to see it. I thought that was a good statement. So no fear. Don't be terrified. Don't be intimidated. See, the fact that they're opposing you is a proof of their lostness. The fact that they consider you an enemy and they try to terrify you. But it's actually a proof of your salvation. That you're not like them. It's good to have enemies. In that sense. Okay. Not because of bad behavior. Not because of carnal conflicts of any kind. But if you have enemies because of the gospel. And if you don't. Oh well. Well. You see, I have a problem because in the scripture it says uh, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The Lord said in John, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Got any enemies? Not for your sake. But for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. Because. You're letting your light shine. This little light of mine. They hate you for that reason. Because you're letting it shine. Third. Accept suffering. Verse 29. For unto you is given in behalf of Christ. Not only to believe on him. But also to suffer for his sake. I don't know what these churches that teach. Uh, Prosperity, the prosperity gospel and name it, claim it and all these things. I don't know what they do with this. The faith healers. Paul said to the Philippians, it's given to you. Here's a gift. This is a gift. God permits you this. In the book of Acts, when the apostles suffered, it said they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. They rejoiced in their suffering. Not because it felt good to suffer. Not because they liked the stripes and the bruises, but because they were worthy to suffer for Christ. Because God allowed them to be identified with Christ, to suffer for his sake. Scripture says in 1 Peter, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. You see, that's suffering because of your testimony, because you're a believer. But a lot of times we bring suffering on ourselves By our own misbehavior. By our own attitudes. By our slothfulness. By our failure. To keep our word. To fulfill our responsibilities. By our anger. By our mistreatment of other people. And we bring it on ourselves. That's not this kind of suffering. This is suffering for his sake. Suffering as a Christian. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. He says, remember the apostles' example. This is what he's saying to them. Live the gospel. Don't be intimidated. Accept suffering. And remember the apostles' example. He says. Having the same conflict that you saw in me. When did they see it in him? Think back to last night. We did When we did Acts 16. What did they see? Did they see Paul beaten publicly? Did they see how he got treated and thrown into jail? Well, now he's saying he, he's got news from there. And it seems that the conflict and the persecutions were continuing in some way. He says, you have the same conflict that you saw in me. And now here to be in me, the word gets back to you and you hear I'm still in jail. You saw me in jail in Philippi. Well, now I'm in jail in Rome. Before that, I was in jail in Philippi. And before that, I was in jail in Jerusalem. All for preaching the gospel. I had anything but trouble the last couple of years. Praise the Lord. The gospel's going forward, Paul says. He says, and now, and now when you have trouble, you just remember it's the same kind of trouble that I've been having. See, the whole idea is that they follow him. We're going to come to that further along in the book. They follow him and they be as faithful as he was. We're not called to simply admire the example of the apostles. We're called to be like them. The Christian faith, is very clearly defined. It's a precise, dogmatic, radical, yes, doesn't go along with this world teaching. It's not on good terms with everyone. I would like to know that each of you has been delivered from the misconception. That Christianity is somehow supposed to be popular or accepted or applauded by the world. Because that is not the way it is in the scripture. And one day, mark my word. And I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. But mark my word. One day, persecution is probably going to come to this country. And we're going to find out who the real believers are. That, that Jewish brother that I talked to on the plane. I was telling uh, some of the fellows about that yesterday from Miami to Dallas uh, because I've flown so much recently. I always fly tours. It was because I fly so much uh, that I got enough miles now, they gave me this platinum status. Well, I didn't know what that meant. I thought it just meant I get to check in in the first class line, even though I'm flying tours, check in there, and i just stand the long lines. Well, it turns out they bump you up to um, the business class seats if they're any open. So I got to the counter, and the girl says, "I'm sorry, there's no seats open." She explained it to me then, and I said, "Oh, whatever." And I always sit in the exit row where I got more leg room anyway, right?" <laughs> and uh, so I went back there and sat in my exit row, and pretty soon here comes a guy, and he sits down beside me, and he's looking out the window. I mean, we spoke, hello, and all that, you know, but he would, and he slept with a friend, and then pretty soon he gets out a book, and he opens it up to start to read it, and it's in Hebrew. And I'm looking, you know, and I said, I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, excuse me, are you Jewish? And he said, yes. And I said, "Shalom, I'm a friend of Israel. I, we love the people of Israel and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And he looked at me and he said, are you a Christian? <laughs> and I said, yes, but in the real sense of the word. And he said, I'm a Messianic Jew. I believe in Jesus as my Messiah. We had the best fellowship. He said he normally gets bumped up to first class or to business class, but that day there were no extra seats, so they sent him back to the back. And we thought, look at that, how the Lord does things. He put us together back there, and we had a fellowship all the And he said he came to the States in 97. He was in the Israeli Defense Force and everything. Some of his friends were killed. And he came to the States, and anyway, down in Redondo Beach, he somebody challenged him to read the Bible and find out for himself instead of just following tradition. And he did. He started reading, and he found the Lord, and he trusted in the Lord as his Messiah, as his Savior. And he said, I worry about America. He said, I haven't been living here all that long. He said, I love this country, and I appreciate and so many things about our freedoms and about the way the American people have helped Israel and so on he he had a lot of it, but he said I worry about professing Christians in this country he said I think we need some persecution he said I wouldn't be the one to tell the Lord how to do it or when to do it he said but I tell you it's too easy for people to say they're a Christian in this country it's a word that doesn't have any content anymore And you think back about the early Christians. They were taught to follow the example and to imitate the apostles, to be like them. They weren't taught that there were uh, the clergy and the laity, see. And over here, the clergy, these men with special gifts and privileges, they're obligated to live a certain way. And over here, we got the common, ignorant people who just go to meetings and listen to the clergy do their thing. That wasn't there. In the New Testament, and you'll see this as we get further into the book, The apostles constantly called upon all believers to imitate Christ and to imitate the example of the apostles in as far as they imitated Christ. Be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ, Paul said to the Corinthians. Here in Philippians chapter 3, he calls on them to imitate, to mark the example and to follow it. And we need to do that. And that's why, because they were preaching the same gospel that Paul did and living like Paul. That's why they're having the same suffering. Are you up to the challenge? Live the faith of the gospel. Let your light shine. Be bold to speak to others about Christ. Don't think it's someone else's job. Take courage, take encouragement, take boldness, and speak for the Lord work together for the faith of the gospel. Doesn't mean everybody's going to be great soul winners like Paul, but everybody has something to contribute. Everybody has a word of testimony. Everybody who knows Christ can speak about him. Everybody who loves Christ can speak about him. And if you have to suffer for that, he says, "Well, you have the same conflict that I had. If you live like me, You'll have the same kind of conflict I had, Paul said. That's what I can promise you. And that's exactly what they had. But this is what the Lord wants from us. Are we up to the challenge? Are we men who are going to be faithful to the Lord at all costs? I pray the Lord help us to do that. Let's pray. This morning, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've been able to spend together. We thank you for the triumphant spirit of the Apostle Paul, and we pray that you will help us, Lord, not to be men who live under our circumstances. Help us to be able to rise above them and to see how your word triumphs even in times of adversity. But We pray that we will be men who are bold, men who love you, men filled with courage and not with fear, Mm -hmm. men who know the gospel and who are not afraid to proclaim, to preach it in season and out of season. And we pray, O Lord, that when difficult times come and trials, that you will encourage us to go on our way rejoicing, even as the early Christians did. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.